Greetings and welcome. I'm so excited today because we are launching the first part of a very special double episode. I recently had the chance to interview the musician Jorge Olguin and the dancer Graciela Hinojosa Olguin. They are a couple, and they have been for 50 years. Jorge and Graciela asked to be interviewed together, and so this will be a double episode. Today, we'll hear from Graciela with some participation from Jorge. In one week, we'll hear from Jorge with some contributions from Graciela. I came to know Jorge and Graciela at the Centro Cultural de México here in Santana, where Graciela has been teaching ballet folclórico for years. Everyone calls her La Maestra Chela. And Jorge has been a participant and teacher in the Son Jarocho workshop. They throw themselves into the cultural life of the community with youthful energy, commitment, and joy. And in this, they offer us a testimony to the power of the performing arts to sustain spiritual, mental, and physical health and happiness throughout a long life. Jorge and Graciela's stories are a bright thread in the grand historical weaving made by Mexican traditional musics and dances as they have developed here in Los Angeles and Orange counties. The experiences they share with us today reflect various social and artistic changes in the period between about 1970 and the present. They can also serve to remind us that traditional arts are like strong, healthy plants. Despite political appropriations, despite exploitation of artists, despite being uprooted and transplanted again and again to new places, they're always growing and changing and sending down new roots, as they have done here in Southern California. Well, I already delivered my little speech about the honor and the pleasure it is to have this interview with the two of you. So for now, we're going to begin with Graciela. Maestra, I invite you to introduce yourself to the audience with your name and a few facts about yourself. My name is Graciela Hinojosa Olguin, and well, I'm a native of Guadalajara, Jalisco. Ever since I was very small, at the age of 13, I've been dancing. I had the good fortune to come from a very artistic family. My mother danced, and so did my aunts, but they never did so professionally. I was always in all kinds of dance classes, and later I went to the University of Guadalajara to begin my formal training in dance in the ballet company of the School of Plastic Arts, which later became part of the University of Guadalajara. During the time I was there, we applied to be part of the university and were accepted. Later on, Amalia Hernandez, the founder of the Ballet Folclorico de México, extended an invitation to me, and I went to join their first company. That's a general outline of my education in dance. A question, if I may. You said that you came from a very artistic family, and it seems like there was a family culture, let's say, of honoring and practicing the arts. But you, you chose a professional career as a dancer, and that's a different thing. It's that a a family that honors and practices the arts is one thing, but a professional career as an artist, as a dancer, that's a completely different thing. So what were the factors that inspired you to choose a professional career? Well... As a girl, uh, as I told you, I I began dancing. And when I was about six or seven years old, one of my uncles 
Eduardo García Maínez, a politician who lived in Mexico City. He eventually came to be rector of the Universidad Autónoma. Well, he knew that I loved dancing, and so he took me to a performance by the Ballet Folclorico de México in the Palacio de las Vejas Artes. And I remember that my aunt, Maria Elena, his wife, she turned to me and asked me, So, Chelita, when will we see you up there on that stage? And since that time, that's what motivated me. Oh, my goodness. The Ballet Folclorico de México is surely Mexico's single most famous dance company. It was founded in 1952 by Amalia Hernández, a classically trained dancer who studied various regional dance traditions and then adapted them as spectacles for stage performance. After 1959, the company received support from the federal government to bring their versions of Mexican regional dances to international stages. They perform in Mexico City and internationally to this day. The international piece is key. Folkloric performances are for export, often originating in rural communities and packaged for urban ones. They often appear before audiences who may have no other reference point for the culture being represented. Amalia Hernández's ballet was a prominent part of a mid-20th century effort to export Mexico to the world as a single, unified culture, one in which many races and histories came together proudly to form a whole that was greater than the sum of its parts. This is the idea of mestizaje, mixture. Mestizaje was perhaps an understandable response to the savage dislocations and disruptions of the Mexican Revolution. In any case, it was an effective one. The idea of Mexicanidad, Mexicanness, that it promotes is still alive and well, both in official cultural policy and in the public imagination. It has been a touchstone of Graciela's career. A little further on in her interview, she tells us about some of the ways that she has passed the pride that this brings on to younger generations. Local regional community practices are changed by being offered as folklore on an urban professional stage, of course, and this makes any claim of authenticity problematic at best. I submit that it's simplest to just avoid this word, authenticity, altogether. It always seems to carry unhelpful baggage. In recent years, internet culture and indigenous activism have increased urban people's ability to learn about and appreciate regional traditions in their own contexts. Contexts that may be remote from or even hostile to any idea of a national art. I suspect that with time, the exciting and beautiful spectacle that is folklorico dancing will take its place as yet another local tradition. An art typical of urban and cosmopolitan settings. What a great story. So, then for how many years did you participate in the Ballet Folklorico? Well, so at the university, I was in that company for a total of five years. And then I was in the Ballet Folklorico de México for less time, less than a year. And the reason I didn't stay there was because, well, really, a professional ballerina's salary was next to nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Although they paid me. In fact, I was making soloist pay. Even so, it wasn't enough. A soloist salary gave me about enough for my transportation. And so I said, no, if I stay here as a dancer, I'm going to die of hunger. How ironic, no? 
How, how ironic. But I, I think it's still like this for many artists and, and dancers, right? Yes. Dancers have to combine their work. If they want to dance classical ballet or folklorico or any other discipline, they have to combine it with acting or dancing in cabarets or other kinds of nightlife. And I never did that. I said, no, I will never dance in a nightclub. Be- because of concerns about your personal safety? Well... My father, when he realized that I was dancing in the university ballet, he, I had a really big argument with him. And he, he just like that, he started slapping me. And he said to me, well, what a terrible thing for him to have a daughter educated in a convent. And then she ends up as a bar dancer. That's what he said, a bar dancer. And so I said, no, I will never dance in a nightclub. Yeah. Wow, that's intense. What a story. Ah, and, and so, at a certain point, you moved to the United States. When did that happen? Yes, that happened in 1967. And the reason was, so the whole maternal side of my family was here in California. My uncles, uh, four or five of my uncles were living here, and I wanted to come to Los Angeles. Uh, I'd been to other parts of the USA, but never Los Angeles. And then also, one of the founders of the Guadalajara University Ballet had been invited to come up to UCLA, and he was in charge of the folklorico classes there at UCLA. So he talked to me and said, so since you're coming, I'm going to invite you to come give us some classes at UCLA because the women need a lot of help with managing their skirts, getting the right attitude, all of that. And so that's what happened, like like the beads of a rosary, you know. One thing led to another. So there at UCLA, I met a friend from years before, Art Gerst, He came from the musicology department at UCLA, and he was in a Horocho group. And he said to me, so we're going to be putting on a show. Why don't you and your dance partner come to dance with us? He put it that way, that we should dance as a couple. And so we did. We danced while they played. And Jorge was there playing with the band. And at the venue where we were performing, there was a talent scout, one of those people who hire and manage artists. And he said to the guys in the band, I like your show, and I'd like to take you to work at Knott's Berry Farm. And so I stayed. I couldn't resist the money. The pay was really good. The theme park Knott's Berry Farm is situated about five miles northwest of Disneyland in what is now the city of Buena Park. It predates Disneyland by almost 30 years. Knott's really was a berry farm back in the 1920s. Over the years, the Knott family developed it, adding a market, a restaurant, tourist shops, and a hand-built replica of a gold rush ghost town. Carnival-style thrill rides came in the 1950s. And in 1969, a new section called Fiesta Village, dedicated to portraying the early colonial history of California. We might not immediately think of theme parks as important in the musical history of Southern California, but Knott's and Disneyland were and are both important venues. Conjunto Papaluapan, that became Candelas, was hired at Fiesta Village on a seven-year exclusive contract, playing regularly in a kiosk at one side of a large outdoor plaza. 
This was a turning point in Jorge and Graciela's lives. It gave them stability and enabled them to buy the home in Buena Park that they still live in. There is a strangeness to it all, of course, very characteristic of Southern California. Fiesta Village was and is an Anglo entrepreneur's fantasy of local colonial history. It is lent illusory depth by something quite real, the artistry and commitment of the musicians and dancers hired to play there. The sounds of their fine performances are always heard in counterpoint with the screaming of people on the thrill rides. I am told by people who know about such things that Knott's rides are far more scary and exciting than those at Disneyland. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Of course. And the truth is, for all kinds of artists, it's that they deserve, we deserve, good pay. Art is difficult. It's a total commitment of body and soul, and it ought to earn a decent living, right? So these are important questions, I think. So I wonder now if we shouldn't go to a bit of music, because at this point in your personal history, we've arrived at the moment of the group with Jorge. It's Conjunto Candelas, right? Yes, Conjunto Candelas. That's right. Yeah, because I had the idea to just listen to a little bit of this music that you gave me, these recordings from 1975. I'm going to play a few bars of El Caballito, played by Conjunto Candelas. Just a taste. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just a taste of the group. So, you two met through this group, which seems to have had its roots in my own university in UCLA. That's right? Yes. So, Art Gerst, yeah, he was there in ethnomusicology. And from that, well, Guadalajara and UCLA are sister universities, so there was a lot of interchange. They went to Guadalajara... That was Art Gerst and Dan Borchard. And then from Guadalajara, they came here to give various concerts. There was Lencho Susilo, Dan Borchard, and also Tim Harley. Mm-hmm. All of them were considered pioneers at UCLA. It's so cool that this history intersects this way a, a little bit with the history of, well, with my history, because I'm at UCLA, a much later generation, but it, it's still really cool. Those days at UCLA in in the 1960s, those were days of a lot of activity and foment in ethnomusicology. At that time, it was the most important ethnomusicology program in the world. And so it was a pretty prestigious and privileged position. And it's really great that you had that connection. So the Conjunto Candelas was formed around UCLA. How many years did the two of you play and dance with that group? If I may, I'd like to make a comment. Of course. When we began at Knott's Berry Farm, we began as Conjunto Papalopan. Okay? Uh Uh-huh. And then we made some changes. As I recall it, within that year, Art Gersh joined us there at Knott's Berry Farm. And then... Ah, okay. So there was this guitar maker in East L.A., his shop was called Guitaras Candelas. 
and he patronized us for a while. Uh-huh. So we used the name of the shop. That's how we got to be Conjunto Candelas. Okay, I get it. So that recording, that was Conjunto Candelas. Yeah, I understand. And before that, you were Papaloapan. Okay. So, we're going to get back, I think, to more about the history of this group a little later on. But for now, I want to return to the music that Maestra Graciela chose to represent certain aspects of her life. So, Maestra, you chose to represent where you come from, which is, of course, Suadalajara, a composition by Pepe Guisar, which indeed has the perfect title, Guadalajara. So let's listen to a bit of this music, and then we'll talk about it some. Here we go. So it goes. <laughs> this music is so lively. <laughs> yep. So, some commentary, Maestra, on this song and how it represents your native city? Why, yes, because when I listen to this song, it shows me exactly some of the experiences of my childhood. Every year it was traditional, on the 12th of October, to make a pilgrimage from the cathedral to the Basilica of Zapopan, and then to bring back the image of the Virgin. The song talks about that, about the pilgrimage. And then after you got to Zapopan, you went to eat in the woods like a field trip, a picnic. Families would bring their food, and it tells all about that. And then when it began to rain, that wonderful smell of the damp earth. It tells about the doves and the forest. What can I say? The smell of damp earth. It would be... Really pretty weather, and then suddenly such a rain would begin. It seemed like the sky was falling. And I tell you, every verse just transports me to that time. It talks about San Pedro Tlaquepaque. It talks about the importance of the local pottery, the wagons, everything they do there, the marketplace. It's like that. It's all a chain of memories and experiences, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's lovely. So, I believe that Pepe Guisar, the composer, he was Tapatio from Guadalajara, right? Right from there. He was Tapatio, but they called him the musical painter of Mexico because he didn't just portray Guadalajara. He wrote a lot of songs describing different places, and they're all beautiful, really lovely. Mm. Like characteristic of each place. Yes, and characteristic of him. He painted Mexico. Yeah. A talented man, it seems like. Yes. It's not surprising that Graciela, a proud native of Guadalajara, chose mariachi music. It's the regional music of the state of Jalisco. The kind of mariachi we just heard, that which is offered by groups like Mariachi Vargas, and which also can be heard in the spectacles of the Ballet Folklorico de México, has trumpets, the very characteristic male outfit of the charro, or Mexican cowboy, and it can attain a high degree of virtuosity and professionalism. It is known as Mariachi Moderno, modern mariachi. 
It was developed in the mid-20th century as another part of the official cultural initiatives that promoted the idea of mestizaje. And this is how mariachi moderno has come to stand for Mexican music in general. Logic would dictate that there also be a mariachi antiguo, old mariachi, in which the modern is based. Mariachi antiguo is string music, no trumpets, made by rural people, and of course it is much less well known on world stages. Here is a short clip of what mariachi antiguo can sound like. This is Akatik Mariachi Antiguo playing La Arenita de Oro, that is to say, the golden grain of sand. That's a lovely set of memories you've shared. Thank you. And you also chose a couple of, well, there's a dance and a song. You chose La Danza de la Culebra, that is, the snake dance. And you told me that you gave it to me because, and I quote here, it represents strength and unity against everything adverse and malign. (laughs) That's right. So I'd like it a lot if you could relate this a little bit to your personal history. I imagine you have danced the snake dance at some point. And then there's the meaning of this dance in the history of Jalisco. Yes, it's very important. A classic part of the repertory at the University of Guadalajara, we always ended our performances with the snake dance. We do dances from the different regions of Mexico, ending up with Jalisco to close things with a golden brooch. And this would be the very last one. So the men in the company take off their jackets... They only wear their vests so that they can manipulate their hats. Because in this dance, they strike the ground with their hats. And they have to twist their bodies around to do that. They even bend backwards. Mm. So this dance requires as much from the men as it does the women. It takes a lot of strength and virility to be able to dance it. Once the snake dance is over, everyone's energy is used up. So, well, yes, it's incredible when you see it, when they're striking the ground with such force with their hats and the women twirling their skirts in the air. It's an amazing spectacle. (laughs) So, Don Jorge, I'm sure that Graciela has made you dance the snake dance for her many times, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Every day, right? (laughs) Well, it's my favorite dance to watch, that's for sure. And... Well, it has a symbolic aspect, the the snake, right? Uh, Graciela, you said, against everything adverse and malign. So how does that work? What elements of the dance symbolize that? Well, that's my interpretation. Because the idea of the snake dance is that, in effect, there's a snake and the men are striking the ground because they're trying to kill it. And as you know, there's an interpretation of snakes as evil ever since Adam and Eve, right? You know, they bite, and some of them are very poisonous. As soon as you see them, you're horrified. But that part is my personal interpretation. In the dance, we just say that it's about striking the ground to kill a snake. Okay. Well, let's listen to a few minutes of La Culebra, the snake dance. Uh, 
This is Mariachi Vargas de Tecalitlan. I believe it's a classic recording. That's how it goes. You can hear the energy, the enormous energy that this dance takes in its music, can't you? Yes. And so, listen, here's an anecdote. In Let's see, it was 1996, Mariachi Vargas celebrated its centenary, 100 years, and they invited my ballet company to dance, accompanying them in the celebration of their first century right here in the Performing Arts Center in Costa Mesa. Wow. So it was my ballet company and the Mariachi Tlaquepaque Symphony Orchestra. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I have the programs and everything. And around that time, we also had another concert with the symphony and Mariachi Vargas, Mariachi Tlaquepaque, and various other mariachis in the Pacific Amphitheater in Costa Mesa. Well, what an honor. <laughs> How exciting, right? Oh, yes. To participate with these... Well, they're, they're cultural monuments, really. And here in Southern California, they have an extra importance, right? Because this is an immigrant culture, and it matters a lot to value and teach the beauties of the home culture. Yes, yes. One of my first experiences here was teaching children dance in Lincoln Heights. There was a church, uh, Epiphany Church, and there was a group of children there who didn't want to speak Spanish. They were Latinx, but they didn't want to. They didn't want to speak Spanish. They were very, well, as if it upset them or they were afraid of it. And when they began taking classes and dancing and giving performances, well, everything changed. Those children were like a ballet of little shining suns, shining with the light of their culture. They were so proud. That was a big motivation for me to keep teaching, seeing such a radical change in those children. Yes. Yes. Awakening pride. That's right. I think it's always important for, for little ones to know where they come from and, and have pride in exactly that, no? Because, well, this is an aspect of U.S. American culture that can be a bit difficult. <laughs> that is, a lot of the time, we look at immigrant cultures in a disrespectful way, right? So what a good thing. What a good thing to work like this against the disdain for immigrants. Yes, yes, it was an incredible experience. Right there, in that church, I got to meet Cesar Chavez and Rosalio Munoz, Rosalio Munoz was one of the founders of the Chicano movement. Wow. A real moment, like a, like a snapshot from history. Epiphany Church helped immigrants a lot. They helped uh, them. Of course. The farm course. workers. They helped the farm workers. That's why Chavez came here. They were helping him economically in his struggle. They helped him a lot. Well, yeah. And... And the role that the church played in all that shouldn't be forgotten, right? It's very important. Yes. Okay, so let's go to your last song, the song that you chose to represent in some way your hopes for the future. 
It's very interesting that you chose the song Chapala. <laughs> it's also by Pepe Guisar, right? That's right. And it refers to Chapala Lake near Guadalajara. So then, let's listen. That's beautiful. Yes, yes. And it describes exactly what's there, you know. The fishing industry. I saw that, those beautiful fishing nets. Long, long strings of nets. Mm. And then the place it's talking about, the marshes. We went there several times with the University Ballet. It's a magical place, like a garden with incredible plantings and all of that. And, well, the song tells exactly what life is like there, what happens there. It's one of the largest lakes in Mexico. But there's a lot of industry around it, and, well, they've ended up poisoning the fish that were native to the lake. The white mm. fish. It's gone. It's completely gone. They've introduced other kinds, carp and catfish, etc., but they killed off the chapala whitefish. And, well, the lake is a treasure for all the people of Jalisco. That's the lake, you know. Families go there on weekends to eat, to enjoy themselves, swim, go boating. It's a beautiful place for all that. I haven't been there yet, but you're making me want to go. <laughs> you have to go. You have to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, unfortunately, with the carelessness of industry and Mexican capitalism, mm. the neglect for the environment is really noticeable. It's that there are a lot of places in Mexico now that used to be so beautiful, and now they're struggling to, to keep that beauty. And it's very sad because the pressures of a growing population, economic pressures, they've, they've created this situation in a lot of places in Mexico. I think the environment is in a really endangered state. Yes, very much in danger. Very much in danger. Yeah, yeah. So... A question about this, Maestra. How is it that a song like Chapala, which memorializes a place and a time that have now changed a lot, how is it that this represents a hope for the future for you? Well, my hope is that they find the technology and that Chapala Lake can return, can be what it was, right? That they don't kill it, they don't destroy the ecology there, and that it can come back to what it was before. That they find a remedy, a solution for all this damage, all this waste, all the pollution they've put into the lake. Well, what a beautiful sentiment. That nostalgia and affectionate memory for a place can serve as a hope for a better future. Mm. I really like the connection you make between looking back to a past that is finished, but taking it as an image for a better future. I, I like that a lot. And I think we'll take that as a good note on which to turn a bit and begin talking with Don Jorge about his history as a musician. And just as he did, I hope, Maestra, that you'll feel free to comment, to be part of the conversation and participate in this second part. Why, yes, of course. Thank you. Well, the thanks go to you. 
And this is just a beginning, right? I think there are a thousand things we could talk more about. But at least with this interview, we're making a beginning. (laughs) It's a coincidence worthy of pointing out that in the interview we published two weeks ago with Luis Sarmiento, we also spoke about the ecological wounds inflicted on bodies of water by modern society. Luis spoke of the channeled rivers of the Los Angeles Basin. Graciela mourns the pollution and mismanagement of resources in Chapala Lake. I hope that somehow we can attain the consciousness and discipline that we will need as a society to be able to heal and care for the waters that give us life before it is too late. As I mentioned in the beginning, this is the first part of a double episode. I hope you'll join us next week for the second part when I interview Graciela's husband and artistic partner, Jorge Olguin. Would you like to know more? On our website at ciofuera.org, you can find lyrics to the songs we discuss, our blog about the issues of history, culture, and politics that come up around every song, links for listeners who might want to pursue a theme further, and some very cool imagery. You'll also find playlists of all the songs from all the interviews to date, and our special staff-curated playlist as well. We invite your comments or questions. Contact us at our website or participate in the Sillo Fuera conversation on social media. We're out there on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And then there's just plain old word of mouth. If you like our show, do please tell your friends and your families to give it a listen. And do please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll bring you a new interview every two weeks on Friday mornings. Julia Alanis, Cynthia Marcel de la Torre, and Wesley McClintock are our sound engineers. Zoe Broussard and Laura Diaz hold down the marketing. David Castaneda is music researcher. Deaneira Garcia and Alex Dolvan make production possible. We are a not-for-profit venture, currently and gratefully funded by the John Paul Simon Guggenheim Foundation. For now, and until the next interview, keep listening to one another. I'm Elizabeth Le Guin, and this is Si Yo Fuera Una Canción, If I Were a Song. Si yo fuera una canción Sonarían por las calles, las montañas y los valles, mi orgullo y mi pasión. ¿Quién soy yo de corazón? Soy una ola, soy una onda, una vibración que ronda por el universo vivo. Y sonando soy testigo a nuestra unidad más honda.